Jingle bells, jingle bells. Jingle all the way. I thought you'd try the 1857 tune there. Nice. Exactly, yes, which you introduced us to on a previous festive podcast. Hello, everyone. It is indeed Christmas, and this is Jaffa Cakes for Christmas. Santa and his sack and the reindeers and what is this? Is it the 108th podcast we've done this year, or is it the second? <laughs> I was <getting> confused. <laughs> yes, but- I thought maybe I'd start a fire going, a nice sort of big crackling Christmas fire. And for fire lighters, I'd use our plans for this year. <laughs> well, there's my notes for uh, six dates with Barker. They can go on the fire. <laughs> Look, they're all perfectly good for the 20s. And yes, we can actually say the Roaring Twenties are coming up soon. That's great, isn't it? It's nice to have a decade that you can actually append a nice little... You can't really say the O's or the 10s, but you say the 20s, can't you? That might be all we have to look forward to, but we're not going to dwell on the state of things. No, I'm 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 not even being specific. I mean, the reason this is the second... I've not had a really good 2019. Just don't ask, okay? 2019 has not been good to me. That Magnus Pike show. Just don't ask, okay? <laughs> get, out my, get out of my face. <laughs> uh, you think you're hot stuff, eh? With Cliff Mitchell more. Hey, yeah, we haven't watched that but yet. Sorry, we, uh, we recently watched... Um, I kind of forgot they existed. They were So You Think You Can. It was an occasional series. So You Think You Know How to Drive. So You Think You Know TV. And when we're watching it, we're just imagining that it was just Cliff Mitchell more behind a desk talking to his lip. Ah, you think you're hot stuff, eh? Eh? Yeah, how many, how many election shows you co-presented with Richard Dillon? Oh, none, none, eh? Yeah. Mm. Oh, any two family favourites? No, no. Only one of us is Cliff Mitchell, Moran, ain't you? So, oh, a quick uh, erratum from possibly many years ago. One time we were talking about adaptations of Scrooge, and I said there was one where for absolutely no reason everybody left when somebody asked, is there any turkey left? I re-watched that version, and it turns out they had a good reason. What it was, was when they were playing the games, and the game was questions, and someone said, Topper, you haven't asked a question. He goes, is there any turkey left? Everybody laughs. And then later, when we see Scrooge arriving at the party, we just hear the rejoinder. We don't hear the setup, and I just hadn't been paying attention. Uh, There's something else that I needed to correct, but maybe that will come to me. So, a few years ago, we did a thing, a pilot for something called the Green Bert Experiment. And that was such a raving success that nobody else decided they wanted (laughs) to pick up. It wasn't our show. We were piloting it just to sort of say, here's the proof of concept. So if you were waiting for a second one from us, well, this is it, writ large, because we are going to be going through a schedule. We're going to be going through a schedule which we've briefly discussed in the past, because we did a show once called The Perfect TV Christmas, and I said 1984, not because of the highs, but just because of the stretch that you could turn your TV on at a certain point and you wouldn't have to change it, you wouldn't have to switch channels for a good long time. Now, I've had to prove that to myself. We have watched all 16 and a half hours of BBC One on Christmas Day in 1984. Now, we haven't watched all the presentation. In some cases, we just have to watch the raw programs. If you're asking, hey, how do you get a copy of that? The answer is, shh, nothing to do with you. Without naming names, we, we must say huge, huge thank you to our benefactors who assisted us. You might have seen us asking on Twitter about this, and we made inquiries elsewhere as well. 
And thankfully, yes indeed, our good chums, who we, we will not name for obvious reasons, managed to come forth with some items that just weren't doing the rounds. I mean, I had to make them copies of uh, my print of Web of Fear Episode 3. <laughs> I reckon the BritBox should just say they've got that on Christmas Day anyway. <laughs> just just do it and then apologise afterwards. So yes, so thank you very much to everybody who, who helped us with this. And if you want to see what was on Christmas Day, BBC One, the easiest way to do that is to go onto the fabulous, probably the best site on the whole internet, the BBC Genome site, which is a wonderful project which seeks to digitise, I suppose you would say, all of the listings from the Radio Times from 1923 through to 2009, and just tap it straight into the database, BBC One, 1984, December 25th, and you'll see the entire lineup there. couple of notes, first of all, I think I'm right in saying that there are no regional variations on this day. I think I did say to yourself, Till, my memories of watching the BBC output, or indeed anybody's output on Christmas Day 1984, are pretty vague. I really can't put my finger on anything and say, yes, we definitely watched that on Christmas Day. So, yeah, I'd love to say, oh yeah, I was up. Because actually, the strange thing is, I remember very, very vividly watching the opening of BBC One on Christmas Day 1982, being there for the opening of the channel and the menu and the all-new Pink Panther show and so on and so on. But for 84, I don't know what I was doing, but yeah, whatever it was, it was taking my attention away from the screen, which was bang out of order. Considering any time we watch any drama or comedy of a certain era, say up until about maybe early 1980s, if there's characters in a room with a TV set, I always think, why don't you have it on? There's things on right now. You're in 1978. Why don't you have that damn screen on? Get get the radio on, for goodness sake. Get Radio 2 on. Show us the front pages of some newspapers or something. But that's, that's, that's just me. What are your memories of Christmas Day 1984? Go. Hello, good morning to you, and a very happy Christmas from me, Paul Lally, and from all of us here at Yorkshire Television on this lovely Christmas morning. That's Christmas 1984 for me. Cute email saying, that was Christmas 1986, but I'm fairly sure it was Christmas 1984. In fact, you know, history is what you can remember. Yeah, ex- exactly, <laughs> yes. And we've been reading a very entertaining thread on Twitter recently about quiz masters and their propensity to occasionally give incorrect answers and then really dig their heels in about it. My faint memory is that was when TVIM showed a cartoon called Herself the Elf, which I didn't watch. I just remembered the title. Uh, for some reason, I was watching the TV in the kitchen that Christmas morning. Uh, I got this really fabulous uh, kind of trailer with a space buggy that pulled this trailer that had a little orange monster inside. Really top-notch stuff. Maybe that was the year that I got the um, space shuttle that played freaky electronic music, depending which button you pressed. The reason that I'm fairly certain on, on those memories, and usually I'm not, is because... My memory was that that was the day of Mary Poppins. And Mary Poppins was a big deal. And I remember the illustration in the Radio Times. So, yeah, Christmas 1984. I I guess if all my other memories are wrong, the one thing I remember is Mary Poppins was shown. We know this for a fact. And it was a big deal. But we're not just a nostalgia podcast. Other people are doing that better than we can because we just end up arguing. It's also about you know, mapping things onto society. And I want to talk about how in some ways you've got 
this is an overlapping point between classical television Christmas and the beginning of modern television that we hate so much. And partially that might be a personnel matter. Gary, you've got tons of research. You need closure on this. Your antipathy towards a certain television executive who's, who's been around for a long time. A lot of people hate Michael Grid because of what he did to Doctor Who. And for a long time, it's like, well, yeah, he could have handled it better. I'm not sure he was being entirely fair. That being said, if there was one good point he had in this whole thing, it was that you didn't just keep commissioning Doctor Who because you've always been commissioning Doctor Who just because it's run over 20 years. That's not a reason to keep commissioning it if it's not doing the right job. And it's only recently that I read that the cancellation crisis of 1985-86, he wasted thousands, tens of thousands of pounds in an attempt to cancel Doctor Who in 1986. And if he'd waited like two weeks, he could have cancelled it in 1987 for free. Right, separating the Doctor Who issue, there was always that faint feeling that he was management... I know he has, I mean, he's got the, the connections, not just being, you know, great family, of course, you're working with Morecambe and Wise, but there's always that feeling that the managerialism that dominates everything now, he was part of that in the 80s. He wore silly glasses and big braces, didn't he? He did, he did, but I'm potentially going to be defending Grade, not just for the sake of being a contrarian, but I found myself doing a little bit of research earlier on, going down the old database rabbit hole and what have you and first of all for the benefit of anybody who people everybody will i think will know who michael grade is but they're not necessarily going to be aware of of how he got to here and why, why is it we're talking about michael grade anyway the reason we're talking about him is because he became the new controller of bbc one in september of 1984 there was one thing this is going years back before we ever had the idea to do this podcast there's one little bit of continuity from christmas night that had caught my eye a while back, and I apologise, I can't remember who it was that uploaded it. It might have been Transfusion or TV Arc or whoever it was, but it's on YouTube anyway. And it is a trailer for Boxing Night programmes on BBC. And the announcer makes a point of saying that the timings on Boxing Night are different to those in Radio Times. And this instantly sort of caught my attention. I'm thinking, well, what's going on here? And straight away I was thinking, is it, is it a news event? What's the cause of this? And it actually turned out that it was a case of the BBC simply changing their schedules after they'd gone to print in the Radio Times because they wanted to make them more competitive against ITV. ITV, having had a couple of lacklustre Christmases in the early 80s, had come back with a bit of a vengeance in 83, and in 84, as we'll see, they were making quite a big deal of Christmas night itself and extending into to Boxing Day as well. So with that in mind, how do we look at Michael Grade's CV? And of course, Michael Grade, originally he was a journalist on The Mirror. He then founded the agency London Management, and he represented people such as Larry Grayson and Leslie Crowver. Then in 73, he becomes Deputy Controller of Programmes and Entertainment at London Weekend, and then Director of Programmes in 77. And he stays at London Weekend until December 81. Now, like we say, September 84 is when he then joins the BBC. But that little bit in the middle is not quite as well known. He became president of a company in the States called Embassy Television. And he stayed there for a couple of years and then went on to form his own production company in the US. With that experience of American television, when he comes back to the UK he is bringing some of those techniques of American TV to Britain. So in the course of looking at bits and pieces to do with Michael Grade, 
came across this speech that he gave to the Royal Television Society in 84. And this is from November. So he's been appointed as BBC One controller by this point. And there are a couple of little clues in this speech as to the way that he's going to run BBC One differently from his predecessors. First one here is, I'm quoting from his speech now, the American experience. They certainly invest heavily in on-air promotion and know how to draw the audience's attention to new programmes. The marketing of new shows to their audience is a highly sophisticated business. Promotion campaigns are worked out with all the attention, resources and skills that a car manufacturer would put into the launch of a new model. And he makes reference to the ABC network during the Olympics in 84, having put out 168 trailers in the space of two and a half weeks for one of their new peak time shows. He then adds, We should not be ashamed about banging the drum to draw attention to the wealth of marvellous programmes we transmit. This is particularly true at the BBC. With four channels, you have to shout louder to get attention, and we shall. Wasn't Michael Grade the one who, at the turn of the century, said, uh, you know, border television shouldn't exist? Wasn't he part of that whole rationalisation? Probably. I guess maybe I just enjoy seeing the worst in people and seeing, you know, a slippery slope. I mean, on the one hand, you've got the cow globe. On the other hand, you've got one of these snowmen has to be a woman. One final point from this speech, again, with relevance to Christmas 84. There's talk in a lot of the newspapers when Gray is appointed about how he wants to concentrate more on homegrown programmes. There will be less investment in feature films and more emphasis on BBC-originated films and homegrown miniseries for television, including a mix of long-form versions of successful series as well as original one-offs. The popularity of feature-length versions of Last of the Summer Wine and All Creatures Great and Small has encouraged us that the money is better spent in these areas. We will bear that in mind when we get to 725. I've got a clipping from that speech and I've simply labelled it Big Reveal. Now, Till, you don't know anything about this. Yes, I didn't know yeah, anything about you, it I was given the option ago. and I said, yeah, let it yeah. come as a surprise okay. to me. So that is to come. We're going to hold that until towards the end of the show, okay? Because it's a nice little twist in the tale. But anyway, BBC announces its big lineup. And as the press release puts it, the BBC is putting the accent firmly on homemade treats this Christmas with a £15 million package of new dramas, comedy, specials, music, dance and documentaries. And it mentions, of course, that Paul Nicholas and Jan Francis will star on a new 90-minute feature-length Christmas Day film of Just Good Friends, the comedy series which regularly attracted audiences of £15 million a week. Last year, the BBC won big audiences with film versions of Last of the Summer Wine and All Creatures Great and Small. Noel Edmonds will present the first show to come live from a BBC studio on Christmas Day for 20 years. In the end, it only lasted two hours, but it was originally an ambitious plan. (laughs) Syntactically, it could have been. (laughs) Most of the BBC's top stars will be appearing at Christmas. The two Ronnies, Corbett and Barker, will have their own special, and there will be shows with Terry Wogan, Russell Harty, Les Dawson, Bob Monkhouse, the stars of Heidi High, Paul Daniels, Dave Allen, and the last of the Summer Wine team. More than 60 feature films will be seen over Christmas, many of them having their television premieres. They include box office hits such as Kramer vs. Kramer, The Deer Hunter, Looking for Mr. Goodbar, and the film that made Julie Andrews a star, Mary Poppins. Mr. Michael Grade, the new controller of BBC One, said, This is the first Christmas I have scheduled for the BBC. I am very happy with the amount of our own homegrown programming. I mentioned earlier on that ITV are making a big thing about Christmas Day this year. And their biggest stocking filler is the 
UK TV premiere of Raiders of the Lost Ark. And that's going to half past eight on ITV. On Boxing Night, they also have the premiere of Airplane as well. Okay, so, right, let's have a look at Britain in 1984. First thing that strikes me, it's very Christian. Our first show, 20 to 9, Play School. Uh, it tells the nativity story. It does somewhat tell it as if nobody watching has heard it before. Carol Chell says, uh, so what about a woman called Mary who lived a long time ago? It's like, you know, I, I think you can kind of take it for granted we know who Mary is, was. We are talking about Play School. This isn't Newsnight. Even then, it still strikes me as unusual. Uh, later on, she um, tells a story about how glowworms became glowworms, and I think it's because of something they did that amused the Christ child. Uh, I, I made a note of it, but um, I can't remember what it was, and I guess it got pushed out of my mind by uh, the story of Dionadal, which is an old story about a man who was caught short on Christmas night and was expelling uh, solid waste in the corner of the manger. This is this is an actual thing. I think it's Spain. Maybe it's Portugal as well. Maybe it's the entire Iberic Peninsula. Uh, yeah, and uh, Baby Jesus thinking this is very amusing. And as a result thereafter, every time he got caught short, it was cakes that came out. <laughs> and this gives rise to a tradition of um, a log wearing a berry and having a big smiley face that you hit with a stick and cakes come out and look that up that's not a piece of whimsy that's not me spinning you a line that is a genuine christmas tradition from europe that should have been the bbc ident uh yes it's a medieval thing very sort of earthy uh time sadly carol chell doesn't tell that and you had no memory of Hamble. Now, this is the thing, because for years when, you know, nostalgia suddenly became a big thing, you know, like late 90s and what have you, and you had all those damn clip shows, people were always going about, oh, yeah, I remember Play School. And you had Big Ted and Little Ted and Jemima and Hamble. It was a really, like, creepy-looking one. And I always sort of thought, Hamble must be a sort of Mr. Turnip-type figure, as in, you know, this is before my time. And I have no recollection of Hamble being there. Who's Mr. Turnip? Mr. Turnip was a character who was around around about the same time as Sooty began on the BBC, and there was a bit of a crossover, as I understand. And there's at least one photograph of Sooty and Mr. Turnip, because Matthew Corbett shows it on an edition of Sooty, which was then a clip that was used in the end of the year show by Thames in 92. Uh, the other presenter of Play School, whose name I really should have written down... Uh, Brian Jameson. Elementary magic tricks, like making a pencil disappear into a handkerchief and uh, something involving uh, an empty matchbox that rattles. Uh, so, I mean, Carol Chell takes care of the religious part, and uh, Brian leads us through the dark arts. This is a strange thing, because according to Genome, the contributors are the presenter, Carol Chell, and unknown Brian Jameson. Was he supposed to be there? Well, maybe that's part of his whole magical... I am Jameson the Unknown. Watch how I make this pencil disappear. It's uncanny. It's not like, you know, the Joker in the Dark Knight. It's the 80s. We don't do that kind of thing. Do you not think Paul Daniels would have been furious, though? I mean, when he discovers that somebody's actually doing magic tricks on the BBC a whole, like, what is it, eight hours before he comes on? I'm going to say that if Paul Daniels' Christmas night magic show, <laughs> uh, he opens with, I'm going to make a pen disappear into a handkerchief, and hey, hey, this matchbox is empty. I think he had it coming. It was just like, oh, look, my thumb's detached. <laughs> Merry Christmas, you know. It's... 
by the way, you've somewhat bounded over your steps, haven't you? Because you're implying that the day began with Playscope, but of course, as we know, the day actually began with Pages from CFAX at 8 o'clock in the morning. Did we watch Pages from CFAX? I don't know. We didn't watch it, but no, it was fine. on. Then it was it's, on. it's not part of this, right? Um, if we can just go back, though, of course, ITV started at, what, 25 past 6? Now, this is the thing, because I thought that I might appoint myself as ITV correspondent during this. So I do happen to have the ITV listings in front of me. Are we going to do BBC Two and Channel 4? We'll cover them at the end. Right, we'll talk no, about BBC Two and Channel 4 at the end. I, I want to keep non-BBC One schedule bits to a minimum. But yes, just tell us about how long did ITV have before they had to worry about BBC One coming on with the big guns? I've got a very interesting fact about Channel 4 Christmas 84 later on. Yeah, ITV is, is up with the cock. 6.25 in the morning, TVAM, Good Morning Britain's Christmas Party. And I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, oh yeah, they probably taped it in August or something. But no, TVAM's big thing on Christmas morning was that they did actually do a live show. And the reason that we know that is because there is footage. There is footage on YouTube of TVAM from Christmas Eve 1987, which of course was the year that... <clears throat> Some of the employees were not in the building. And Anne Diamond is there saying, yeah, it's, it's such a shame that we won't be in tomorrow because it's always such a lovely morning. We always bring our families in. Anyway, we've got this absolute steaming pile of whatever you want to call it from Disney. And then they play a clip of this bot-in nonsense that they've got to run. And I think they actually let the clip play on long enough, just about to the point where they're going to mention the sponsor's messages. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. But anyway, in 84... Good morning, Britain's Christmas party. Nick Owen, Anne Diamond, Wincy Willis, Frosty Lee, Charles Brandreth, Eve Pollard, and Jenny Barnett. Your your man, the Archbishop of Canterbury, the Right Reverend Robert Runsey. Is he Right Reverend? Have I just made that up? I don't know. But anyway, Robert Runsey, he's going to be bringing a Christmas message and tell a few um, filthy limericks as well. And we've got a cartoon special at 6.25. Roland Rat is going to be there. So that's 6.25 to 9.25. And herself the elf, I'm fairly sure. If you know better, let me know. Helps me get perspective on my memories. Right. So after play school, it's... Busker's Christmas Story, episode number two of three. With Christopher Lillycrap. I did a little research. Lillycrap himself has claimed that his surname, which apparently some people thought was amusing, uh, possibly indicated an illegitimate line from... Elizabeth I, a little bit of research that I did says it's actually a Devonshire surname, probably more specifically uh, around about Sowerton, or I, I don't know. English place names are so counterintuitive, Sowerton might not be the correct pronunciation. It might be like Slathwit and Sorby Bridge. It comes from Lily Crop, possibly translates as white head, so probably somebody with a lot of fine downy hair. Anyway, what this is, is a retelling of the nativity in a familiar and vernacular style that I found a bit oppressive, actually. <laughs> I don't remember Christopher Lillycrack being so hyper, but in this, he's just playing a busker who's spotted you and has decided to tell you the nativity story in as familiar and vernacular a fashion as he can manage. And the baby was going, wah, wah, wah. and the shepherds was going, go after our sheep. That's not a direct quote, but that's kind of the way he does it. It's a bit like... I'm too old to really get Timmy Mallet. There's probably just a perfect age, and and like w within a few, if you're a few days past that age, Timmy Mallet is the most infuriating thing. And now looking back as a particularly sour and bitter old man, Busker's 
Christmas story is annoying me. But that's it. He's, so he's telling a nativity story in a vernacular fashion, singing a few songs. He's got his acoustic guitar with him. And despite this being Christmas Day, he doesn't finish the story. So he'll actually finish the full nativity on Boxing Day. But that was only 15 minutes. And that was also made by BBC Manchester, by the way. And it was all on VT as well. And now at 9.15, we're going to have a repeat. Yeah, 9.15. Born in Bethlehem. Popular carol sung by the BBC Welsh Chorus in Bethlehem. Uh, had been shown the previous night on BBC Two. What they don't mention is there's uh, Martin Jarvis doing a lot of voiceover uh, all these places uh, in and around Bethlehem. There's a travelogue feel, and there's also what I would call a gift shop video feel, if that makes sense. It's got the televisual grammar, phrase I use a lot, but I hope it conveys the sense that I'm trying to convey. It has the televisual grammar of an independent production. I don't think it was, was it? But it feels like something you would buy in a gift shop in Bethlehem that have the VHSs out. Mm, yes. And there's the PAL ones on that side. And there's the NTSC ones on that side. And there's none of them in Seacam because the French don't deserve God. <laughs> so it has some of that feel. Then the production values are high, but it doesn't quite look like television as we're used to it. Did you correctly identify this as being a co-production i think it was a, oh that was it yes it turned out to be a co-production yes so that might explain it uh but principally it's ala jones occasionally doing a solo and the bbc welsh chorus just in bethlehem standing there singing a carol and i have a question how much do you think the schedule is reflecting the way people consume television on christmas day and how much of it is influencing them because this almost seems, you know, you've been awake since six and you've opened your presents and you're halfway through a selection box and the sugar crash is coming and the energy's dissipating and this has kind of almost a screensaver-ish quality. I don't mean that to put down or in indicate that this is substandard. It's actually something television can do that I don't think people necessarily talk about which is just be there something i think they recognize in the u.s when a lot of networks or at least affiliates uh for a while on christmas morning will just have a log fire television merely being a screen with something on it the moving wallpaper which is used as a criticism but why not why not have television just be a companion to what you're actually doing rather than something that requires all of your attention? So what do you think? Do you think that's canny scheduling or do you think there's just people that get used to starting to turn off around about nine o'clock-ish mentally? I don't know if this is necessarily what you call an atypical BBC morning schedule, but certainly when you fast forward to, say, the early 90s, BBC will start around about 7 o'clock in the morning with a, a large block of children's BBC material. And that is actually the way that ITV is approaching things because they're doing things in a rather different manner. They've had their very raucous TVM Good Morning Christmas Party. I didn't say lewd because I don't think it necessarily <laughs> go, goes in that direction. Yes, I don't. But <laughs> until Robert Runzi comes on. Unless you're actually right, then Robert Runzi comes on and says, Good morning, happy Christmas, everybody. The boy stood on the birdie deck <laughs> eating red hot scallops. But after after, after that, and the, the apology from the IBA, then they just carry right on with lots of seasonal children's 
materials. So they've got Danger Mouse. They've got two episodes of Danger Mouse. They've got Thomas the Tank Engine. And they've got Emu at Christmas uh, featuring... Amongst other people, of course, Carl D. Scott's there. And Freddie Stevens is there as well. But we've also got Carl Wayne. Well, hey, hey. So, yeah, they are just... They're they're right in there. They're just saying, you know, come on, keep it going. Run around, don't don't sleep. You know, be, be hyperactive. Just make a noise and crash into things and so on. Yeah, BBC's much more restrained. They, they then come out of this and they go into the Christmas morning family service, which I think it's fair to say we've actually seen more of than anybody outside of the production gallery <laughs> necessarily seen because our copy of it began about a minute before the Oh, we're back to the, to the BBC one because ITV has a Christmas morning family service from St George's Chapel, Windsor. I think I might have actually been to St George's Chapel, Windsor. What, that day? Uh, no, no, but I've definitely hung around in a chapel in Windsor that had heated marble. Anyway, yes, so the Christmas morning family service. I mean, you know, so, so far... Place Girl Busker's Christmas Story, Born in Bethlehem, all sort of, you know, reflecting uh, the one true God. And now for the sinful, heathen, Protestant <laughs> section of... Well, no, it's just that there were about four sermons in this. That's that's not my experience of church. If you want to check it, I think this year I saw somebody on Twitter say that the Christmas morning service on BBC One is going to be coming from St. Joseph's Roman Catholic Church in Bradford. Now, hang on. I just uh, let let me go up to Chocker Block, and I shall check that whilst you speak. Do carry on, and I shall uh, get back to you on that. So, I mean, that's it. It's a religious service. There just seem to be a lot of sermons, hymns, and readings, but then sermons, and then more hymns, and then more sermonizing. I mean, to me, it's readings and all the uh, call and response stuff, and then the gospel, and then the sermon. Uh, and there's a sermon come after. It's been too long. Anyway, the most noticeable thing is, of course, we keep cutting two shots of the congregation who are all dressed in their Sunday best, and no doubt some of whom have never set foot in the place before, but they want to be on telly. Somebody doesn't want to be on telly because we cut, and there's one child who basically turns his face away and holds his hand up. Like, whoa, 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 nobody's supposed to know I'm here. <laughs> whoa, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, he's going to have some explaining to do to the missus when he gets home. Where the bloody hell have you been for the last 12 hours? Now, the thing is that you mentioned there about ITV having the Christmas morning service with the Royals. And Alistair Burnett is actually introducing it as well. Now, I'm sure that I read in a TV Times once, because I think somebody was complaining about the fact that the, the service, I think it was one Christmas morning, uh, contained a fair degree of Catholicism. And this reply came back from the head of religion and everything at ITV. And he said, well, what we normally do on Christmas morning is that we alternate with the BBC. So you tend to get the, the Protestant service on one side and the Catholic service on the other. But clearly that's not what's going on here, is it? Because we've got a very traditional service from Windsor on ITV. And we've got this, like you say, this Fisherwick Presbyterian Church in Belfast on BBC. So where's the mass? Apart from an RTE, of course, where it's on for 14 hours straight. Do you actually know that the royal family are involved? Or are you just assuming that because it's Windsor and the presence of Alistair Burnett means... I mean, means maybe St. George's Chapel is a Catholic chapel in Windsor? Okay, I, I, will, I, I can confirm from the TV Times listing, the Christmas morning service from St. George's Chapel, Windsor, the Queen and members of the royal family are in attendance as Alistair Burnett introduces traditional morning worship. I like the fact there's a slight implication there that the Queen and members of the royal family are in attendance 
as Alistair Burnett is going to be there as well. So, you know, they're expected, right? You can't slack off from this, not not when Burnett's in town. Well, I've said my piece about the uh, the Christmas morning service. We'll just have to wonder about the mystery of camera shy boy. One final point on this. I am actually looking up now details of St. George's Chapel, Windsor Castle. Apparently it's Church of England, but it says previous denomination Roman Catholicism. So I don't know where the hell I am with it. Well, that would be an ecumenical matter. Well, yeah, very much so. And one final point on this. You are absolutely correct that the Christmas morning service on BBC One this Christmas Day is from St. Joseph's in Bradford with the Bradford Catholic Youth Choir and the Reverend Christopher Angel. So there you go. They're going to be singing a bit of Mozart, apparently. So, 11.05. I mean, do we want to say that maybe that's when the official Christmas television really begins? Yeah, I think that's fair. Technically, I'm going to say it begins at three minutes past 11 because we've got the well of Michael Fish. And that, to me, is that's the main event. That's Because in effect, for. we could say that the early part is almost kind of narrow casting. It's for children. Born in Bethlehem, it's not meant to be ignored, but it, it isn't meant to call your attention. Christmas morning family service, maybe families are watching it, but a lot of families will have gone out to their own Christmas services. This, 11 or 5, this is when it's like, right, Mom, Dad, kids, and Uncle Nameless, the Eldritch Horror. <laughs> uh, let's all sit around the TV and look at Noel. Was there a photograph of him? Uh, <laughs> Cutting out the family circle. Somebody took their eyes off Noel. Look at Noel. Christmas, for Christ's sake. <laughs> now, this is what I say, though. This is, in some ways, the beginning of modern television. This is the beginning of people television. It's still being done, oh, it's done in a radically different fashion from what we'd recognise now. But it's that whole idea that television is as much about the people at home watching, interacting, or being the subject of it. Uh, one of the first things Noel does is, you know, ring the show. And he takes a call from a viewer and says, what are you going to be doing on Christmas Day? And the viewer says, getting drunk. Noel lets out a laugh like he isn't seeing his broadcasting career flashing before <laughs> his eyes. Actually, you know, if I can just drag in that jolly fellow with the bushy beard that we all think of at this time of year, Andrew Hickey, who has a fantastic blog posting on uh, andrewhickey.info where he talks about the difference between the US Christmas and the UK Christmas and talks about how the language of the UK Christmas is kind of, televisually certainly, based in the 70s. The US Christmas is kind of for the early boomers and the UK Christmas is for the late boomers. So it's glam rock and Morecambe and Wise on television. And I think part of that is the first 25 years of Christmas television, uh, if we can ignore the brief service of the 1930s, is kind of unknown to us. You can't really have a repeat of a Christmas morning show from the 60s even. But I'm assuming that there was a lot of visiting children in hospital on Christmas morning television. What I'm saying is there's a certain element of reinventing the wheel in this Noel Edmonds show. So as well as... Noel Edmund's obvious fascination with television, so there's going to be like link-ups. He wants to look at television in other countries. He's almost inventing YouTube. <laughs> okay, that, that sounds preposterous, but one of the first things is, here's a funny cat, here's a funny hamster. These are home videos of amusing animals. Talking with members of the public on the phone, but there's a big chunk of this given over to visiting children in hospital. But instead of being uh, the old-school comedians of the time, it's pop stars visiting children in hospital, uh, which gives a very odd... I mean, you've got Howard Jones wandering around or miming to his song uh, to a bunch of children. And, I, you know, they look 
pleased enough. Uh, it's it's not that uh, they've got anything against Howard Jones, but it's a very peculiar moment. So it's that thing of the, the trying to, I guess, maybe trying to transition to some concept of cool. Certainly, I don't think there's any attempt at being cool in this show, and it's very comfortable in of itself. I think when we're watching this, I think I said this is a really nice show about nothing. But there's that whole thing of pop stars: Kim Wilde, Howard Jones, Strawberry Switchblade, the Thompson Twins. The Thompson Twins don't perform live, but one of their videos is shown. Again, pop videos. We're in a transitional period where pop videos are a thing, but you can only see them at certain times on certain shows. And we happen to know that they had a few pop videos lined up just in case. We've been privy to uh, what was on kind of the B-reel just in case this whole live show went down. It actually goes remarkably smoothly, doesn't it? This is the odd little technical mishap and what have you but by and large over the course of an hour and a half and a lot of that is also outside broadcast from the Falklands. Ah right I wanted to get to that because yeah on the one hand we've got all these pop stars and it's all very much focused on the new pop it's all very post-punk but I don't know what you said there was something faintly political about the link up with the Falklands small p political I'm not trying to pin any kind of sinister propaganda motive i'm just saying it's how people were thinking of things so the falklands was seen as a great victory and something to be proud of well it just featured the night before as well it was a jim davidson special from the falklands that was a big part of itv's christmas lineup and was advertised quite a bit in their promotion so that had gone out the night before mind you on the other hand of course it's very 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 far away but it's still British territory. Well, let's get the biggest link up possible, but somewhere where the laws are pretty much the same here, so there's not quite so much paperwork for us to fill out to do the link up. <laughs> I suppose there's that element as well. It's a little bit scrappy. You've got things like uh, somebody's having his beard shaved for charity and we see him at the end, but they don't actually rejoin him to get a look at his smooth face. I think Noel said that this was the first time there were live pictures from the Falklands. Was that right? Yes, and he gets some um, live pictures from Vatican City. You can tell that he's getting excited by this possibility. And hey, we're, we're, sorry, we're talking about how this is the beginning of the modern age. What else is one of the big features of this show? There's a guy on this show with a phone with no wire. It's got an aerial. He, he's in charge of a thing called Cellnet. Mobile phones. And not only do we see mobile phones, but at one point, Noel Edmonds reads out Johnny Morris's mobile number on air. <laughs> so we have the chairman of the recently privatised, yes, British Telecom. It was private utility by 84, yes. Because it was renamed and then privatised, wasn't it? Well, because it used to be the GPO, didn't it? But by this point, it's going to be British Telecom PLC. Uh, we do have a thing where his uh, wife and children are linked up to on TV. I'm not saying he didn't deserve, <laughs> but it, it sort of feels almost like, yeah, that's a light, nice surprise for him, but uh, it doesn't really affect me. And he does have a reason for being there. Show me the phone. Show me the magic phone, Noel. No, I'm, I'm, I'm not expecting you to have an answer to this just now, but I mean, I'm, I'm getting a bit confused by all this phone business because this is Christmas Day 84 and they're all waving their mobile phones around. Not euphemism. And yet, exactly one week from now, are we not told that Ernie Wise is going to make the first mobile phone call with Vodafone on New Year's Day 85? Well, he, he probably made the first mobile phone number when the networks had gone on because, as Noel says, this you know it wasn't like a case of and you can buy this. 
now. So I guess these are technically experimental phone calls. Cellnet has not officially launched. It's just been set up. So these are kind of test calls and they don't really happen, do they? So Noel is like, he dials, he gets nothing. He dials, he gets an engaged tone at one point. And then it's like, let me, let me see if I've got this number right. And he then reads out the number he's calling. We see Johnny Morris very far away because he's also got his helicopter. That doesn't really do much. It just flies around and takes very long shots of things. Is this the pattern that Noel wanted for Saturday evenings? Wasn't that a thing? World of television. Yes. No. You think there would have been elements, had that happened, there would have been elements of let's have a look at some foreign television and we've got a helicopter flying around the country right now and let's have a look in people's windows. And you mentioned earlier one about the like the, the morning service and Bonham Bethlehem and what have you sort of being TV, which is on, but not necessarily going to get your full attention. This is perfect for that as well, because I can picture this being on in the corner of a very noisy living room. And people will sort of, uh, sometimes I think there's some points where Noel actually says, he's almost sort of sitting forward and trying to attract your attention by saying, we're going to do something now. We've got a world first coming up. This is it. You know, want to see this. And it's almost as if he's sort of acknowledging that people aren't necessarily going to have the full 100% attention on this show, on this morning. And he's every once in a while just trying to sort of bring you back to it to say, yeah, the bit that we were talking about half an hour ago, well, that's coming up now. I, I guess with, with a format of this type, with so much that they're trying to do in the space of an hour and a half, you couldn't exactly have a, a grandstand style running order in the Radio Times for it. Not one that was absolutely precise anyway. but. It's quite a feat. And I think I spotted one little clipping in the newspapers that suggested that the bulk of this was actually put together within the space of about six weeks. Michael Grade, again, had said to Noel Edmonds, what are you doing on Christmas Day? And that was how this came about. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a very enjoyable show. And the hour and a half passed by very quickly for me. And I found myself sort of thinking, I wish there was something like this on Christmas morning nowadays. It would be very expensive to produce, given the, the amount of technology that they're deploying and all their OBs and, and what have you. Uh, like you say, if, if you're sort of counting 11 o'clock as the proper start to BBC One, it really gets the day off to a very, very nice start. After that, we have a film. Now, I think we disagreed about this film. When you say you, we disagreed about the film, well, you, look, you were looking at the wrong film on IMDb for about half of it. And you were well, wondering that, that, why. Yeah, but it was part of the same series. <laughs> you were wondering why certain actors hadn't turned up yet. But no, this is the fabulous blue murder at St. Trinian's. I have to admit that this is the first time I'd ever actually seen a St. Trinian's film. And that said, I knew pretty much what to expect straight away. It's got all the, the people that you would expect to be in it. You've got Terry Thomas, you've got George Cole, Joyce Grenfell. It's a brief appearance by Alistair Sim. And guesting in this one is Lionel Jeffries. And yeah, I thought this was fabulous. I thought it was perfect for this particular time of day as well. It's a film which had been on several times previously, so it's not a premiere or anything like that, obviously. But again, it's just something that's really nice for Christmas Day. And you can give it your full attention if you want, but you don't have to. I really enjoyed this. I think you had sort of qualms about... What's qualms? No, I'm not against it. In fact, at some time, I really need to visit all the good ones. All I was saying was, even setting aside the fact that it's in black and white, I don't think you could show that 
at 12.35 on a Christmas afternoon now on BBC One. Yes, because a few minutes, you know, it's like, oh, they're all running around capering about. Uh, and then it's like, and here are the sixth form. It's a bunch of girls in school uniforms and stockings and suspenders dancing around so that their skirts fly up. And we've already had George Cole as Flash Harry. Sex trafficking. Um, well, they don't call it that, do they? No, it's a marriage agency, but uh, we see the picture and uh, the girl in question is 17 and a half. And all I'm saying is, it's interesting, isn't it? that some of the things that are normal now would have been so completely beyond the pale. And I guess in some ways, uh, taste or whatever you want to call it, cultural mores, sometimes you can almost say they don't really expand, they just move, but they keep the same dimensions and they've now moved to a place where sexy schoolgirls are kind of beyond the pale. Okay, Confession, I haven't watched the 21st century St. Trinian's ones. I only saw the poster, but I'm fairly sure that the concession to sexy schoolgirl was like pencil skirts, not short skirts so you could see the stocking tops. And I look very closely. <laughs> you got the 4K TV in, just, just, just for that. <laughs> but not another thing to say, though, and something I'm kind of hoping we'll get some films that will help us talk about this. Certainly in Britain... There's a 1950s sexual liberation that kind of gets overlooked because of how explosive the 1960s sexual liberation was. But there's something uh, happening in there. The entire country is changing its approach and is loosening up a little. And uh, maybe next year we'll talk about some early carry-ons and we'll be able to uh, expand upon that more. What year is this, Blue Murder? This in 57. I hear what you're saying. And yes, I, I, I would say that Quite possibly, if that's the I'm case not in twenty nineteen, for or against, I'm just saying. I think this is this, we're going back to the doctor down under conversation. Oh well, that's just oh, horrible. <laughs> you cannot believe I've pulled that card out, can you? I can't believe it took you so long. Actually, <sighs> when we were watching Doctor Down Under a little while ago, Tilt was just horrified. Within thirty seconds, he was saying these individuals should not have their liberty let alone be struck <laughs> off. And I'm trying to explain, yeah, the difference is that in the sitcom universe that this exists in, their actions do not have the same impact as they would do in EastEnders. Gary, I'm example. older than you. I used to pay Dane Geld. Don't try and make me look like the woke young whippersnapper. <laughs> okay, Centrinians, it's a brand... I know you don't like that word, but it but it sort of is. It's, it's it's a film series and what have you, and it's got its own sort of universe. You know, if all these six formers were cavorting around the place like this on Panorama, then yeah, I think there would be cause for complaint. But it's all so innocent, and you know that it's all so innocent, and there's not going to be anything at all that's that's going to be. Yeah, I'm just saying that CD. it's kind of fallen out of the cultural mores of the 2020s. That's all I'm saying. Well, here's the thing about this, right? Now, if you're going to go with Mary Whitehouse about this, right? I'm, not, I'm just saying, isn't it interesting? I'm being a kind of amateur sociologist here. I'm not talking about shoulds and shouldn'ts. I'm saying Christmas afternoon, you're not going to get that many sexy schoolgirls in this day and age. No, I'm setting up a gag here, right? Okay. If you're going to be all Mary Whitehouse about it, then for God's sake, don't look at what's going on on ITV. That's all I'm going to say, right? Because whilst this is going on, 
First of all, you're quite safe at 11.45 because it is indeed Bugs Bunny's Looney Movie, which I think you pointed out to me was not actually a proper film because it's a sort of, you know, here's some stuff you've seen before. With some yeah, here is some material. Uh, yeah. classic Warner Brothers shorts. Maybe they're not even that classic. I'm not sure. Here's some Bugs Bunny shorts with linking material that's been newly animated. So that that's quite safe. But quarter past one, we've got, and I think this could be a podcast in and of itself. We're going to do pop at ITV at some point. Christmas Day pop spoilers on ITV intended to take eyeballs away from Top of the Pops on BBC One, sometimes going head to head, sometimes earlier. And in this case, we have top pop videos of 84. Quarter past one to two o'clock. A selection of the year's top pop videos from the biggest selling British single releases featuring Wham, Duran Duran, Boy George with Culture Club and Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Now then, I don't know if anybody has a copy of top pop videos of 84 kicking around that they could possibly check, but we all remember what Mike Reed said about what goes on in the video. Is that what's going out on ITV? Do we think? Is that the one that presented by Jim Davidson? It might be. Yes. There's definitely one here. My memory is more that they had Kate Bush in, but I've definitely read one where Jim Davidson plays pop videos on Christmas Day. Duran Duran. It's not going to be girls on film, obviously. That's probably a different year anyway. But Frankie Goes to Hollywood. Are they actually going to show the video to relax? It's going to be The Power of Love, I think. Oh, probably. Anyway, we'll hear a lot, lot more about Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And that discussion is coming up right now because it's two o'clock. Two o'clock, Top of the Pops Christmas special. So we're kind of in the last flush, I would say, of the new pop. Uh, in fact, some people who pay more attention to 80s pop than, than I really do do a better job than me. Some people point to Band-Aid as worthy as it was, and for all the good work it did, if you purely look at it in pop music terms, it kind of established the new pop stars as being a canon of great rock stars. And from that point on, Things got a little bit more ponderous and self-serious. I want to ask a question. It's one of the traditions. This isn't, by the way, I'm just making this up. It's one of the traditions in our household on Christmas Day that we all play a nice wee game of who's going to be presenting Top of the Pops. And we, we <laughs> all put like five pence in, in the pot, right? And then somebody's going to win the loot. Now, in previous years, I think I think the year before this, in 83, I think we had Andy Peebles. I think we had Janice Long. I think we might have had maybe Mike Smith, was it? Ah, oh, I'm not sure. Memory's playing tricks. But anyway, yeah, there's always a little bit of intrigue as to see who the favoured Radio 1 presenters are, who are going to be the ones who are going to be presenting this year's big fan dabby dozy Christmas Day pops. So who is it then? We've all got our five Ps on the table. I've gone for, I'm going to guess, I'm going to say, I'm going to say Kid Jensen and John Peel. There you go. That's my bet. And the answer is uh, fundamentally nobody. Or rather, everybody. Michael Hurl was so annoyed. And I mean, how early did all the jocks start saying, who's doing Christmas this year? Is anybody lined up for Christmas? Because, you know, I'd be available uh, to do it. Michael Hurl got so fed up with this that he punished all of the jocks and said, the act will introduce each other and there will be no single presenter for Top of the Pops. There. It's breaking tradition, isn't it, really? Isn't it? It is, but I mean, uh, maybe if the jocks were being that obnoxious, maybe they deserved it. Who are we to doubt the decision made by Michael Hurl? Do we think that Michael Hurl got a phone call from Simon Bates at one minute past three on Christmas Day, 1993? <laughs> he might have waited till after the Queen and then said, right, come on, 
I need to plan things, you know. We, we can't just hang around. What's your decision? Anyway, we get our second Howard Jones of the day. And second Thompson Twins, I think. I don't think we need to dwell on that top of the pops. It's been repeated surely on BBC4. It'll be out there. Yes, it'll be on the circuit. I think, am I right in saying that Frankie goes to Hollywood on this three times? Well, they had the hits. Gary, traditionally, did you watch The Queen? This is a thing, right? Okay. I did. And I still do. And I know that I'm sort of, I'm fighting a losing battle here. But even from a very young age, I always sort of took the view that because The Queen was on at three o'clock, BBC One and ITV, and, you know, repeat on BBC Two with the signing and what have you later on. But I always just thought the Queen's message should be on. Nobody else in the household was sitting there watching it. Everybody else was just doing all the things. And it's exactly the same now, for goodness sake, but I always put it on. Because it's like, it's the Queen, it's three o'clock. If nothing else, it's a sort of point in the day that signals Christmas Day viewing, as in proper serious viewing, you are going to sit down and watch this properly, has begun. And so, yeah, it was always me who made damn sure that it was one of the proper channels that were showing it that was on at three o'clock on Christmas Day. But I can't honestly say that everybody else in the household was too fast. What about yourself? I think sometimes yes, sometimes no. I don't remember it being a thing, appointment viewing. But similarly, I'm fairly sure there were times when we all took a look. I've got a funny feeling that the outcome, if they were to ever try to move the Queen's message or not have it at all, I think it'd be fairly similar to a scene in one of the Royal Family Christmas editions where Barbara asks everybody in turn, did they enjoy the Christmas dinner? And everybody says, I wasn't really too fussed about the turkey. I've never really liked turkey. It was a wee bit dry. Yeah, I could take it or leave it. And she says, I don't think I'll do turkey next year. And everybody in unison says, what? No turkey at Christmas Day? You're joking, aren't you? That's what would happen if suddenly (laughs) the Queen wasn't there. And I'd love to know what the the general public's reaction was in 69. Because, I mean, it even gets mentioned in the Dustbinman (laughs) Christmas special. There's no Queen on tomorrow. I mean, yeah, okay, we've got colour in Des O'Connor, but it's not the same. Uh, Anyway, the Queen talks about um, the 40th anniversary of D-Day, talks about the Commonwealth, we get some views of the extended family, the new grandchild, uh, accompanied by uh, selections from the Healy Hutchinson Carol Symphony, better known as the theme for Box of Delights. It's, I can't remember the name of the movement. Anyway, it's the the bit that goes into an orchestrated version of the first Noel. So I guess in some ways that's just Christmas tradition, royal family, classical music, but it's Christmas classical music. But then at the same time, it's almost like a bit of sneaky cross promotion. Remember watching the Box of Delights this year? Did you remember? You enjoyed it, didn't you? Right? Where did you get it? BBC. 85, I think she used uh, KPM for the uh, the music bed. Uh, pop package, yeah. Actually, we forgot to mention that. Noel had that playing throughout, didn't he? He had Christmas library music playing for at least half of the show. We've reached a particular point in Christmas Day viewing, so I think we shall draw a line there. Point of order, ITV, 2 o'clock, Jane Toffel and Christopher Dean special. And of course, 3 o'clock, the Queen. So if you want to know how Gary reacted to uh, watching Mary Poppins for the very first time in his life, this year you'll have to come back for part two and we'll see you then 